Hello and welcome to the first in a three-part podcast series, which seeks to understand financial crime compliance in the context of cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrency exchanges. My name is Drew McCarthy, and I'm a Senior Managing Director in FTI's APAC Financial Crime Compliance Practice based in Singapore. Here to moderate with me is my colleague in Southeast Asia, uh, practice co-leader, Anna Blizzard. Throughout this podcast series, we will hear from experts from SCAD and ARPS, Crypto.com, and FTI on the latest issues and trends impacting the use of cryptocurrencies and crypto exchanges, as well as the broader financial crime compliance implications. Today's conversation represents the first in the series and is centered on understanding the U.S. and Asia regulatory dynamics currently at play. There's been a flurry of regulatory activity in this area, particularly in the United States and Asia. And we aim to learn a little bit more from our experts about what these developments are and the impacts to the industry as a whole. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Kyung Kim, Senior Managing Director and Head of FTI's APAC Cybersecurity Practice. I'm also joined by Antonio Alvarez, Chief Compliance Officer at Crypto.com, and Etan Fish and Javier Urbina, both from SCAD and ARPS's Financial Institutions Regulation Enforcement Practice. Thanks so much for your time today, everyone. Let's get started. Let me first turn to Antonio. Some believe a cryptocurrency revolution of sorts is underway between the underlying technology, blockchain, which we all know about, which enables the existence of these cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, in addition to numerous other applications, which um, we won't get into today. There's a lot of interest in this space. But many of our listeners may not be totally fluent in this. For those of our listeners who may not be familiar with what cryptocurrencies are or the role that crypto exchanges play in this part of the financial system, can you tell us a little bit about both? Sure, thank you, Andrew. Um, well, we have to go back to understand cryptocurrency. We have to go back to the to the inception um, and the, really the inception of the internet. Ever since the uh, internet was created, um, it's been the World Wide Web has been evolving. Um, if you recall, it started with information sharing, and then it evolved into an e-commerce platform where people could, you know, uh, could exchange software and buy books, uh, buy books and, and trips. And before you know it, it created a social economy. So there's now an, a whole e-commerce and internet economy that is still fully dependent on the financial systems. So you can buy something by providing a credit card, but the actual exchange of funds happens outside of the internet. It happens in the real world. The, what crypto enable is the exchange of that value straight through the internet straight in the, in cyberspace. Um, the blockchain being a peer-to-peer -peer, you know, communication and balance sharing technology enables me to send you value just like I send you an email. Um, and that way we can complete transactions strictly in the internet. In order to make all that happen, um, the, the, the the currency that had to the digital currency that had to be created within the internet had to have a set of features in order to avoid things like double spend and people take giving you money and then taking it back, etc. And all of a sudden, it started creating these commodities markets where people were speculating and buying and selling, and it's how the crypto exchanges were really introduced and the, the need that they started to to fulfill. But it all came in from the point that cryptocurrency has to be scarce in order to protect themselves from those uh, those flaws or those threats in the e-commerce and the inter internet um, value exchange. Thank you, Antonio. 
I find it really fascinating to think about the shift that we've seen in consumer behavior and that creation of the social economy. I, for one, am a big fan of the convenience that it's bought. Here in Singapore, you can order pretty much any groceries you need and have them delivered within a couple of hours. And buying and selling secondhand items with a simple transfer between digital wallets. Based on the development and speed of the evolution of crypto that we've seen over the last few years, we've seen different reactions from different countries as to the extent to which they'll allow cryptos, and then secondly, how they'll regulate cryptocurrencies. I'd like to turn to Kyung next. Kyung, what are some of the key regulatory developments from a crypto perspective that we should be aware of, and how do they compare across Asia? Okay, um, thank you, Anna, and thank you, Antonio, for your input. Um, in Asia, I have to say it is a mixture of regulatory developments since their regulations are being uh, passed different uh, time frame. For example, Singapore and Korea have a lot better guidance and they are further along compared to any other countries. I will start off in Korea first since I am in Korea. Korea, they have uh, a clean cut vision when it comes to cryptocurrencies, but their approach on digital asset is a little more tough as they're viewing digital asset as their legal tender. And their local exchanges are tightly controlled by the uh, Korean uh, FSC called Financial Service Commissions. This year, March, Korean government passed a bill to regulate uh, cryptocurrency exchange in this country. And the, uh, their National Assembly approved a revised bill on reporting and conducting financial transactions, including cryptocurrency. The government has, until this March 2021, next year 2021, to implement this law. Once it is implemented, they will be given six-month window to bring the activities in line with the new regulation. And there are three major things I would like to point out um, uh, regarding the regulation in this country. First, they will be required to comply with financial reporting uh, requirements. For example, they have to use a bank account with real names and apply know your client policy. And they have to be integrated into existing banking uh, system, right? Another major development is that they need to get their uh, ISMS certified, information security management system certified, since cryptocurrency exchange get targeted very often uh, by adversaries. And last thing I would like to point out in Korea is that the government suggested introducing approximately 20% uh, tax uh, income on cryptocurrency trading, but the uh, this law has not been adopted yet. Um, I would like to touch upon the uh, Singapore. Singapore is a little bit more ahead when it comes to cryptocurrency regulations. Monetary Authority of Singapore issued the payment service act regulating the circulation of cryptocurrency. One of the main reason they did introduce law is to force the companies to comply with anti-money laundering and to combat the uh, terrorism financing. In Singapore, crypto companies need to first register and then apply for a license to operate in Singapore. Right, government is very proactive. Uh, they're even helping the clients uh, how to apply uh, and how to get a license. Um, Singapore government has introduced a code of practice to assist cryptocurrency exchange with their application process. 
when you compare it to Korea uh, and Singapore against China, China is a little bit behind. In 2017, Bank of China banned cryptocurrency exchange, but however, the turning point came in 2019 when a Chinese court ruled that Bitcoin was digital property. Bank of China has uh, said they are prioritizing the launch of uh, central bank digital currency, but the uh, Chinese government is still quite cautious in approaching uh, to uh, cryptocurrency and digital asset. In general, they haven't really um, implemented uh, issued regulations. Despite the uh, Chinese government's stance towards cryptocurrency, the country has shown interest in block, blockchain technology and developing a central bank digital currency. According to um, Financial Times magazine, uh, one of the articles I originally read, the Bank of China has recently filed application more than 80 patents related to a new digital currency. So I believe that this matter of a time that China will issue their regulations against cryptocurrency and believe they will have a tighter control compared to Korea and Singapore due to their political environment. Thanks, Kyung. You know, we from where we sit in Singapore, and obviously, you know, from where you are in, in Seoul, um, you know, we watch the the differing approaches to crypto-related uh, regulations with with um, some sense of wonder here, and because it, it is it is there's still a lot of uncertainty, and especially because of you know one of the things that plays so prominently out here is the impact of U.S. regulations. And I'm curious, I, I want to turn it over to, to Aten and Javier to, to give us a sense of what's occurring in the United States from a, from a regulatory perspective in, in this space. In the United States, obviously one of the most advanced uh, regulatory regimes with 50 states and various federal regulators, there's also a great deal of regulation coming up from, from numerous places. So perhaps I, I, I turn it over to Aten to, to give, a sense, give us a sense of how the United States is approaching regulation of companies in, in the cryptocurrency space. Aten, what are your thoughts? Yeah, thanks very much. Um, I, I think kind of at a, at a high level, the US regulatory response has largely been to apply existing money transmission law frameworks uh, to the world of, of cryptocurrencies or digital assets. I think it breaks down, and, and as, you, as you just noted, there's kind of both the federal and state component to it. And I think in this respect, it breaks down really into three component parts. First is at the federal level. And the question there is, are you, or are the activities you are engaging in uh, money transmission such that you would be considered a money transmitter? Um, if you are, then you qualify as a money services business with brings with it a whole host of of obligations, the first of which um, is registering as a money services business with the US Department of Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or more commonly known as FinCEN. FinCEN is the federal, uh, federal agency that primarily administers and enforces the Bank Secrecy Act, um, which is the main AML legislative and regulatory framework that applies to financial institutions in the US. So the first, the first step or the first requirement would be to register with FinCEN as an MSB. Uh, the failure to do so 
can bring with it both the potential for civil and criminal consequences. So it's not it's not just kind of a check the box item. It is, it is something where there are a number of factors that can kind of weigh on whether you have an obligation to do so. Um, and if you do, there are consequences that flow from failing to, to register. Once you are kind of a money transmitter, money services business that has an obligation to register with FinCEN, you have a whole kind of series of AML compliance program requirements that flow from that, right? You are then, you become a regulated financial institution. Uh, and, and it's not just that you are, it's not just limited to US companies that may have that obligation. Non-US companies, foreign located money services businesses that are engaged in activities in the United States um, can also be subject to similar requirements. Uh, and the way that the regulations frame it is, are you engaged in these activities in the United States, in, in whole or in substantial part in the United States? Um, but you know, as we've seen in, in many in many worlds, including in this one, uh, what constitutes substantial part is is very flexible, and there is any activity can subject you to potential enforcement action. Um, but once you have the once you have that obligation, you have to implement an AML compliance program. There are basically four key components that flow from that. One is you have to have policies and procedures, and internal controls. The second is you have to have appropriate training. A third is you have to have a designated AML compliance officer, and you have to have independent testing and auditing of your compliance program. Those are kind of the four basic components. There's a lot, obviously, that we can get into that flows from that, um, but those are kind of the basic components of a money services business and how they are regulated from an AML compliance standpoint. Um, there are reporting requirements, suspicious activity, reporting requirements, et cetera. Um, be moving beyond the federal level and kind of looking at the states, as you said, there, there's a basically a 50 state kind of patchwork approach. Uh, so depending on the states in which you are engaging in activity, you may be subject to state laws in those states. And those break down into kind of two, two approaches. One is most states. If you are engaging in kind of money transmission activities, you may be subject to the money transmission laws in those states. Each state has its own money transmission laws layered on top of, or perhaps more appropriately framed as independent of the state of the federal approach to money transmission and the federal money transmission laws that we just spoke about. Many, some states have kind of said virtual currencies and digital assets are kind of part and parcel of their approach to money transmission. Other states have said um, virtual currencies fall outside the scope of their money transmission laws and some other states have, have, have been silent. So there is a real kind of mishmash of approaches at the state level. Uh, the third component of kind of this overall framework that you need to consider is there are certain states and really kind of first and foremost among them right now, although others are, are considering it, um, is New York. New York adopted several years ago a virtual currency specific regulatory framework, which is kind of known as uh, the bit license regime, where if you are engaging in kind of so-called virtual currency business activities involving New York, uh, you have an obligation prior 
to engaging in those activities in New York to seek a license from the New York Department of Financial Services. Uh, and there's a whole host of, of obligations that flow from that as well. It's not just having an AML compliance program uh, that can be reviewed by DFS in New York, but there are other um, consumer protection mechanisms, cybersecurity mechanisms and controls that you need to put in place. Uh, and that can be, can be a lengthy process. Um, so you know, I think that from a, a money transmission AML framework, there's the federal and then there's the federal money transmission, the state money transmission, and then to the extent the state has it, a virtual currency specific business activity uh, framework that you need to contend with. The, I would just make two other points. Um, one is that in the financial crime space, one element that can sometimes be overlooked is uh, compliance with US economic sanctions. And that doesn't have a specific regime that has been applied to virtual currency business activities, um, but more so it's just the reality that any transaction involving a US person or a nexus to the United States or any dealing or business activity involving a US person or a nexus to the United States can trip over US sanctions jurisdiction uh, and brings with it U.S. sanctions compliance obligations, and I think that's that's an important thing to keep in mind as well. And beyond, you know, the second point is beyond the kind of world of financial crime, there are other players uh, in the mix: um, the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, the CFTC. Uh, there are a lot of kind of different regulatory actors that are kind of part of the regulatory landscape in the U.S., even above and beyond kind of those in the financial crime space. Thanks very much, Etan. The number of players, both state as well as federal, is actually quite enormous and a very real challenge for all financial services organizations to contend with and navigate. And when you have the varying degrees of guidance and enforcement coming from these organizations, it makes things even more challenging in real time, but also in terms of gauging what's coming next and how to prepare. Let me turn it over to Javier. Javier, what are your thoughts in terms of the direction of regulatory developments as we look forward a bit? There have been several anti-money laundering regulatory and legislative developments in the United States over the last several months that may impact businesses that engage in certain virtual currency activities. As Eitan mentioned earlier, the approach in the United States to date has largely been to apply existing money transmission laws to entities that issue, exchange, administer, or transmit virtual currencies. But most recently, FinCEN has used its broad authority under the Bank Secrecy Act to propose amendments to existing rules and regulations that if adopted would result in more stringent requirements applied to virtual currency businesses. Specifically, in October of last year, FinCEN, along with the Federal Reserve, proposed to lower the threshold for the travel rule in the United States from $3,000 to $250. At a very high level, the travel rule requires US financial institutions to transfer certain payment information to receiving financial institutions for funds transfers that exceed uh, the established threshold, which is currently set at $3,000. This amendment to the travel rule, if adopted, um, may significantly impact virtual currency businesses. 
which were already grappling with the challenges of developing processes and, and standards to achieve compliance with the travel rule at the current threshold of $3,000. Certainly the, the lower threshold would capture a substantially larger number of transactions that would be subject to the travel rule. Additionally, uh, since the proposed rule would only apply the lower threshold to international funds transfers, that is transfers that start or end outside of the United States, virtual currency businesses may face challenges in determining whether a transaction is international, quote unquote, given the inherently anonymous nature of virtual currency transactions. It would be difficult to know the identity or the location of the counterparty involved in a virtual currency transaction. Another proposed rule that FinCEN published in late December of this past year would impose new reporting and record keeping requirements on banks and money services businesses with respect to virtual currency transactions that involve an unhosted wallet. In other words, a wallet that is not hosted by a financial institution and would also impose these requirements on transactions involving wallets that are hosted by financial institutions in certain specified jurisdictions. The proposed rule would require banks and money services businesses to file a report with FinCEN for transactions that exceed $10,000 in value that involve an unhosted wallet. The rule would also require banks and money services businesses to collect and retain certain information associated with funds transfers that exceed $3,000 that involve an unhosted wallet on either side of the transaction. Initially, FinCEN had only given the industry 15 days to comment on that proposed rule with comments due in early January. However, after sharp criticism from key industry players for the limited comment period, FinCEN reopened the common period and extended the deadline until the end of March. There's been a lot of criticism of the proposed rule and, and some of the key uh, criticism relates to the fact that banks and MSBs would face substantial practical and technical challenges in differentiating transactions that involve hosted wallets from those that do not blockchain addresses may not necessarily be registered or located at a specific location and do not readily show whether the wallet involved is hosted or unhosted. Critics have also expressed concerns that the proposed rule could have a chilling effect on the use of unhosted wallets, which tend to serve unbanked and underbanked populations and may hamper the evolution and adoption of, of blockchain technology in the US by forcing centralization on a nascent technology that is largely premised on, on the concept of decentralization. On the other end of the spectrum, FinCEN contends that the proposed rules reporting and re record keeping requirements would allow law enforcement agencies to more effectively combat illicit finance risks associated with unhosted wallets. It remains to be seen whether and in what form FinCEN will adopt 
these two proposed rules issued late last year. On the legislative front, just last month, the United States enacted the National Defense Authorization Act of 2021, which includes sweeping legislation intended to modernize the anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing laws in the United States. Although this legislation for the, for the most part does not specifically target virtual currency businesses, the changes that it makes to the existing anti-money laundering legal framework will certainly impact all financial institutions in the US subject to the Bank Secrecy Act, including virtual currency businesses that are deemed to be money transmitters. The legislation did include certain provisions that seek to ensure that the anti-money laundering legal regime applies to current and future payment systems by expanding the definition of financial institution and money transmitting business to include businesses involved in, in the exchange or transmission of value that substitutes for currency. This broad term would capture virtual currencies and other emerging payment methods. Although this amendment does not reflect a change in FinCEN's existing position that companies that engage in the transmission, administration, issuance, and exchange of virtual currencies are subject to the Bank Secrecy Act's requirements, it may help reduce any remaining doubts about the application of the Bank Secrecy Act to virtual currencies. And it does provide a framework for regulating future payment methods. Thanks, Javier. Lots of regulatory developments there that sound like they could really pose practical challenges for virtual currency businesses. You touched on the travel rule and the lowering of the threshold from 3,000 to 250 US dollars. 250 US dollars seems a very low threshold, and I would imagine that this will indeed pose a significant burden for some crypto businesses. You also touched on the inherent anonymous nature of crypto transactions, making it difficult for virtual currency businesses to comply with some of the requirements. Antonio, I'd love to hear from you. How do you think these regulatory developments, particularly the travel rule, will impact organizations like yours? Cryptocurrency as an industry is trying to grapple with, with the question on how to comply with the travel rule. The travel rule is, is a reaction. The power of the blockchain is, is transparency, right? It's, it's ability that anybody can look into the blockchain and see all transactions. And that's critical in order for the operability of that blockchain uh, so that the transactions can be validated and blocks can be constructed and, and closed. So the first challenge that we face as an industry is how to recognize each other within that open space. It's transparent, so it should be easy to recognize other exchanges, but you have to realize that once you recognize another exchange and you recognize the, the addresses that they're using, you can easily see all of their transactions and really understand their business and, and getting a, a little uh, too exposed <laughs> in that respect. So from an organizational perspective, we're looking at what are the solutions out there that would allow us to be exposed so people know when they're sending us uh, a transaction that complies or that, that triggers the, the travel rule threshold 
um, that they know that it's us so they can send us the information they're obligated to do uh, per the rule without having to expose to them all of our addresses and all of our activity, which is like everybody else is transparent and, and publicly available in the blockchain. The second challenge is the, the additional friction that it creates. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to walk into a bank to send a, a, a money transmission or a wire transfer uh, of more than uh, the $3,000 in the US or $1,500 in Singapore or you know, different thresholds in, in different countries. And you're presented with these huge long form that has so much stuff um, and, and IDs and, and the number of things that the banks are required to do uh, in order to comply with the travel rule. When you try to put that onto an exchange, it creates um, a lot of user friction. And, and if it's needed, it's needed and, and we'll do it, but we want to make sure that it's done consistently so that it doesn't put us in a non-competitive uh, position so that anybody in the country that is doing that transaction would have to go through the same level of friction and, and it's part of creating the transaction. It's not depending on where you are or what country you are in or what exchange you're doing business with, if, if you know how they're operating into that market, that can create a lot of uh, anti-competitiveness within the, within the industry. And, and finally, I think another key challenge that we're finding is how to deal with, with the non-custodial wallets um, that Javier was talking about. Um, the, how to recognize the, uh, when, when it's a non-custodial wallet, how do you do it? Um, there are countries now like the US that is looking at for us to collect more information, but the consistency across all the different countries is what's gonna make the travel rule possible. Uh, and today um, is not consistent. The travel rule as it is applied today in the banking system through a SWIFT organization is incredibly consistent. Doesn't matter where you go around the world, everybody knows how it works. We still don't know how we're gonna discover each other. We still don't know what formats we're going to be exchanging with each other. Every country has a different uh, a different threshold uh, that needs to apply. Um, and, and, and like Javier was saying as well, every, every transaction is an international transaction per se because the, the addresses reside in the ether, right? In the cyberspace. So there is, or either there is all of them are international or none of them are, right? And, and as you can imagine, the regulators are always going to look at it and say, all of them are. Um, so that's that's really the challenges that we're facing and we're trying, we're working with, uh, with the uh, industry, partnering with uh, regulators around the world and trying to understand um, really what are they trying to achieve and, and what is the best way to achieve it um, in a way that doesn't impact the users and, and the competitiveness of our exchange um, as opposed to others. Antonio, thank you. We're just about out of time. So let me first thank Kyung, Antonio, Aten, and Javier and yourself for such a terrific discussion. But before closing today's episode, I'd like to briefly highlight one message that really sticks out for me from our discussion. There's a tremendous amount of regulatory activity and interest in this space, but there are varying degrees of understanding and bona fide guidance in circulation today, and not just in the US, but across the globe as well. This makes life very difficult for digital asset users, as well as exchanges. And at the end of the day, I think we can all agree the use and adoption of digital currencies will only grow, as will the importance of exchanges. So industry and regulatory bodies are both incentivized to work together, I think. 
It's clear that industry and regulators should continue collaboration in order to foster sensible regulation that not only promotes business and financial inclusion, but also smartly targets financial crime. Thanks again to our guests and thank you to our listeners. In our next episode, we'll discuss how crypto-related organizations are operationalizing compliance. Until then, if you'd like to find out more about what we do here at FTI and how we help our clients detect and combat financial crime, please reach out to myself or Anna or any of our guests today. Thanks again.